Hello and welcome to episode three of Unstoppable, the podcast. I am your host, Mr. Kerwin Ray, and in this episode, we're getting down and diggy with the quantum stuff. We are interviewing Dr. Stuart Hammeroff. He's an anesthesiologist, so he's a dude that typically knocks people unconscious, but that has led him to a pursuit to learn more about consciousness. And as a quantum physicist and a professor at the University of Arizona, he has gone deep and wide into areas that most people can only dream of. Stuart was actually the producer, writer, and scientific advisor for the documentary What the Bleep Do We Know? and also the uh, the longer version Down the Rabbit Hole. This film went viral. I still remember this film. Like, this film changed my world. We are going down the rabbit hole and we're looking at the small stuff that makes a big difference in the quantum world of consciousness. Listen up. Dr. Stuart Hammeroff, welcome. Kerwin, thanks a lot for being here. Absolutely. Now, what, what do I call you? Do I call you, do I call you uh, Dr. Stuart, Hammer? Stuart the Stuart's Hammer? Fine. All right, fantastic. Hammer is my nickname in the operating room. I know, right? As if I put my patients to sleep. No kidding. But I don't. I use propofol and gas and stuff like and, that. And for people who don't know who you are, I'll let you explain a little bit more about that. But uh, I discovered you through the, the documentary, What the Bleep, that I watched in 2004. And, and as you know, as I've already told you, that documentary forever changed you know, my view of the world. And you know, two things impressed me about you. First of all, it was your perspective on consciousness, and secondly, it was that three-point shot that you, <laughs> you know, you just landed so effortlessly uh, when you did your jump shot. So I like the, to say it was the first take, but <laughs> the magic of television, right? I, it wasn't quite. I was a little nervous. I used to play a lot of basketball, and that was my home court up near my house. But. Right. So, for people who don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do. Well, I'm an anesthesiologist. I'm a professor of anesthesiology and psychology and director of the Center for Consciousness Studies at the University of Arizona. Uh, when I was in college, I got interested in the problem of consciousness, the brain-mind problem. In med school, I was oriented towards brain-mind specialties, neurology, psychiatry, neurosurgery, but wound up in anesthesia, anesthesiology, because my future chairman said, if you want to figure out consciousness, figure out how anesthesia works, because anesthesia is fairly selective. Under anesthesia, the brain is still active. We can measure evoked potentials, which is useful for spine surgery, for example but there's no consciousness, the patient's not there, they don't make memories. So if we can figure out the specific thing that anesthetics do to prevent consciousness while sparing these other activities, it'd be a big clue, and in fact, we think we've done that in recent studies. So you've been studying consciousness now for about 35 years, is that right? Uh, over 40, 40 over 45 40 actually, yeah. And it's interesting, because I remember at first I was like, anesthesiology, like at my first time, what, what's the relationship? And then it literally took a second, because I was like, well, He's knocking people unconscious. So I can see that there's a direct correlation between the two. But you've been studying consciousness now for over 40 years. So in your opinion, because you know, it's, it's almost like this mystic element of our psyche or, our, or, 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 our, or, or of our, our presence or our soul that most people don't understand. But from all of your research and experience, how would you describe <laughs> it? What is consciousness? Well, let me first say that most people would say that the brain is a computer. And if you do sufficiently complex computation, the consciousness emerges as some novel property. <clears throat> That's kind of the party line. The other <clears throat> possibility that most people say is that, because the, that doesn't really explain anything, uh, em emergence, you know, like wetness from water or phase transitions, maybe, but there's no prediction of why that would occur. The other possibility people say is panpsychism. So when you get sufficiently complex, you get in touch with consciousness, which is everywhere in the universe. Now that's getting closer, but saying consciousness is a property of matter is wrong. I think, uh, um, I studied these structures called microtubules inside neurons for many years, 
as more computation. It didn't really work. And finally, I read a book by Roger Penrose called The Emperor's New Mind, who had a mechanism for consciousness. And it's kind of a long story, but basically it involves um, connecting to the fine scale structure of the universe. So in answer to your question, I kind of went roundabout, consciousness is, in my opinion, organized ripples or waves in the fine scale structure of the universe. We're actually attached, they're connected to the deepest level of reality. And by that I mean if you go down in scale, smaller and smaller below atoms, quarks and whatnot, eventually you get to the basement level where there's some information. It's called the Planck scale. So the the universe, space-time geometry has some structure. We know that because it curves due to mass and so, and but what it is we don't really know, but it has some structure and information there. And this has been talked about in mystical tradition, traditions as the Akashic record or, or uh, various uh, um, uh, platonic values and so forth embedded in the universe. And Roger came up with a mechanism by which through quantum mechanics the brain can connect to that deeper level. And when that happens and it organizes, I think that's what consciousness is. Now it's happening usually between our ears, in the brain, we think because of the microtubule activities but in the end, we think for conscious awareness, for phenomenal experience, as opposed to behavior. You can do all kinds of complicated things without consciousness. But for conscious awareness, perceptions, feelings, you need this connection to the fine scale structure of the universe. So ripples in the structure of the universe. So if consciousness is ripples in the structure of the universe, is consciousness out there or is consciousness in here? Well, the universe is here, is here too. Yeah. And But it, um, according to... Roger's theory, to which I subscribe, and we've elaborated on it, these uh, collapses of the wave function are occurring everywhere, ubiquitously, around us, in the table and in the, in the air molecules, kind of like panpsychism, where consciousness is everywhere, except this is an event. A, a quantum collapse is where something, uh, uh, particles or space-time begins to separate, but it will, it's unstable and will kind of snap back to one or the other, and that kind of, you can think of it emitting a particle of consciousness or emitting a, a quantum of consciousness. But normally these are occurring everywhere and they're random and disconnected and disjointed. They don't, there's no memory, they don't amount to much. And the, what the brain does and what the microtubules do is orchestrate it and, and put it in a meaningful uh, uh, conscious experience. A good metaphor might be if you go to the symphony, it, um, well let me, let me say I think consciousness is more like music than computation. Right. And if you go to the symphony and the, and the orchestra's warming up and each uh, musician is playing his or her instrument, just tuning it, you know, eh, eh, you hear all these funny noises, it's literally a cacophony. That's not music. And that's kind of like what's happening with proto-conscious events here, here, there, and everywhere in the environment. But then the band begins to play, the symphony begins, and you hear music, whether it's Beethoven or the Beatles, or probably a better analogy would be like a jam session because you don't need a conductor. It's self self-organizing, uh, improv, that sort of thing, jazz or just jamming. And I think that's what the brain does. It takes in information and it has stored information and it all resonates together at this fine scale structure to give it awareness, phenomenal experience. Hmm. So what is the purpose of consciousness? Is the purpose of consciousness to help us collapse the, func the wave-like functions that are around us to form the reality that we experience? What, what is the purpose of Well, that, that explanation you just said would be what's called the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics, where consciousness causes collapse. Right. Where, you know, Schrodinger's cat, the cat is both dead and alive, you open the box and somebody looks at it and all of a sudden it's dead or alive. The problem with that explanation puts consciousness outside science. It's something weird and mysterious. It doesn't really define it. It's used to explain reality. We have it completely the opposite, that collapse happens spontaneously due to properties of the universe, and that gives consciousness, that, that emits consciousness, right. you might say. 
So it's 180 degrees different from the interpretation that consciousness causes collapse. Collapse causes consciousness, or collapse is consciousness, if you will. Now, as far as the purpose, um, that's an interesting question because it depends uh, when consciousness arose in the universe, for example. Now, many people would say that consciousness just happened in the last couple hundred thousand years where uh, humans or uh, uh, predecessors learned to use tools and language and that sort of thing. Um, but I think consciousness goes way back. I think consciousness is, is in all animals and even plants may have it. They all have microtubules, which are the structures that you would require. Um, and some people think that consciousness actually uh, preceded life. And if you take Roger's view that, um, that these self-collapses occurring here, there, and everywhere, some of them are going to be pleasurable, okay, just by random chance. And it could have been that um, these, these events were taking place and molecules began to organize to, and had these experiences, these pleasurable experiences in particular, and then began to self-organize to optimize pleasure, if you will. And this led to self-organizing systems, biomolecules, and the first life. And life then evolved to optimize pleasure. Now, this is heresy. I'm, I'm kind of a heretic in a lot of different areas. But, you know, uh, evolution, which is very successful, Darwin's a pillar of modern science, would say that um, life evolves in order to optimize our genes so our genes can survive and procreate and, and so forth. So um, the selfish gene, according to Dawkins. Darwin didn't really say that, but, but this is... So the prevalent idea is that um, the whole idea is to promote our genes. That's the purpose of life, and therefore consciousness, if, since it came along. I don't think that's right. I think that consciousness actually came first, and life evolved to optimize pleasure and avoid displeasure and pain. And to, you know, from billions of years ago to this day, we're evolving to optimize pleasure. Now, that can include altruism. You know, it could be hedonism, you know, that, that mm -hmm. type of pleasure. But altruism, it feels better to give than to receive spiritual pleasure love, doing good, that sort of thing. So I think well, that... Well, it seems interesting that there's a connection there when you look at spiritual philosophy, you know, especially in the East, and they talk about craving and aversion. You know, the, 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 the process of meditation and mindfulness is to release the desire for things and the fear of things so that we can remain present where things are. So how does that fit in, in the model of consciousness when we look at you know, overlaying spirituality into those concepts? Well, I think that's I think that's sort of true. Uh, craving, uh, we crave pl pleasure, yeah. and we uh, try to avoid displeasure. And uh, now that can go wrong. Look at the opioid epi epidemic, yeah. you know, through seeking pleasure. So it's not a foolproof uh, system, and some people get pleasure by doing evil things. Unfortunately, whether they're wired back backwards or what. Um, but I think uh, I think life is evolving, and our behaviors are directed towards seeking pleasure and avoiding mm -hmm. pain. Sometimes it gets us in bad situations. So. Well, it's interesting because a lot of spiritual philosophy believes that that's the root of all human suffering. Seeking. Seeking pleasure yeah. and avoiding pain. Yes, well, suffering goes along with it. <laughs> so from your experience, like consciousness seems to be something that's quite deeply mysterious. We believe it, it's, it, it's, it's something that emanates from a ripple effect. So I suppose from that perspective, when we look at consciousness and its role in humanity, what is the role of consciousness in terms of where we are in our state of evolution right now? Uh, well, as I said, I think uh, consciousness is evolving. I mean, life is evolving. And life is evolving to optimize uh, consciousness and, and pleasure, generally yeah. speaking. And in fact, it could be that um, if you go back even further, um, uh, 
when and ask the question, when did consciousness appear in the universe? Uh, some people say recently, some people say with all life, some people say before life. And some people, including a philosopher named Colin McGinn, as well as Eastern spiritualists, would say before the Big Bang, that consciousness created the universe in that sense. And, uh, and idealists would say that consciousness is all there is. Well, an interesting uh, take on this is uh, Roger's, Roger Penrose's view of uh, that the Big Bang was actually preceded by another eon and, and didn't just start from nothing. And there was another eon, and before that there was yet another and another and another. It goes all the way back. And there'll be future eons after this one. One universe with serial eons. And each eon uh, um, ending with uh, entropy and kind of a heat death. But as Roger says, when the particles lose their mass, they forget the scale. And you start all over again with another big bang and it happens again. Now, if that's true, it's possible that the physical constants which uh, govern the universe, there's about 22 physical constants the, the, the ratio of the mass of the electron to the proton the, and, and uh, the gravitational constant, the cosmological constant, there's 22 numbers. If they weren't exactly how they are, then there wouldn't be stars with giving off light, there wouldn't be life, and there wouldn't be consciousness. So the universe appears to be fine-tuned, perfectly tuned for life and consciousness. And this has led to a dilemma called the, uh, which is called the anthropic principle. Why is the universe perfectly tuned for consciousness? And there are two basic answers. One is that it follows the multiple worlds hypothesis, quantum mechanics, where we have an infinite number of overlapping worlds, multiple worlds, and only in this one does consciousness exist. There's a zillion others, and we won the cosmic lottery, and we exist in this universe. Therefore, we're the only ones able to ask the questions. All those other universes are devoid of consciousness. So that explains uh, the, the, uh, the astronomical a long shot that we, we live in the perfect universe. The, uh, that's called the, uh, the weak anthropic principle. Uh, but it involves multiple worlds, which is probably, in my opinion, or Roger's opinion, wrong. Um, the other is the strong anthropic principle, which suggests there's some motivation or so, there's some guiding, uh, something guiding the universe to optimize these numbers to, op to allow for consciousness. And uh, whether that's something like God, uh, a lot of people have put forth. Roger and I, we have kind of a different idea that, and we, we put this in our last uh, paper, that uh, if you apply his ideas of, of a serial uh, universe and with this changeover occurring at each Big Bang, the, these physical constants actually go through a process where they can mutate and evolve, much like life mutates and evolve, and that giving rise to evolution. So we, each eon can actually evolve slightly or maybe in a big way, from the previous eon. And each eon is therefore slightly better off for consciousness. And then over many, many eons, going back God knows how many trillions of years, the universe itself is evolving to optimize consciousness. So consciousness is evolutionary. And consciousness is evolving. Consciousness is driving the evolution of the universe right. and life. So it's not, not evolution isn't driving consciousness. Consciousness is driving evolution. Exactly. And when we look at consciousness, because obviously it's relate, a lot of people relate consciousness to spiritual practice, to mindful practice. You know, you, you obviously bring in a really interesting perspective where we're talking about consciousness. You know, as this, as this, as something that happens deep in the brain activity that is essentially then goes beyond brain to a quantum level. But when we look at consciousness and mindfulness, ooh, are, are we comparing the same thing here, or are we looking at two completely different concepts? One scientific and one's philosophical. I think mindfulness is a description of consciousness when you're contemplative, you don't act rashly, you don't act reflexively, 
you, you deliberate, you, you cogitate and contemplate things before you act. And I think when that's occurring, then you can bring in what Roger described as platonic influence, platonic values. Uh, embedded in the universe. He believes... Before you go into that, what, explain to people who are listening, what's a platonic value? Well, when these quantum collapses occur, in, in most types of quantum physics, they're thought to be random, probabilistic. Einstein didn't like that idea. He said, God does not play dice with the universe. If you have a system in superposition, uh, it somehow collapses to one... Uh, uh, two possibilities coexisting. It somehow collapses to one or the other. Now, the Copenhagen interpretation, which you mentioned, suggests that observation causes that... Multiple worlds would say, no, it, there's no collapse. Each one branches off to form its own new universe. Uh, Roger would say that when you reach a critical level, that it self-collapses to one or the other, and one is chosen. Now, when that occurs, according to him, uh, the choice is not random, as it would be in the other explanations, but rather is influenced by what he calls platonic values embedded in the structure of the universe. Uh, non-computable values. He, he wrote about this in his book, uh, The Emperor's New Mind, and said, for example, understanding cannot be a computation. Uh, uh, a computer can beat you in chess because it can calculate way, way ahead, but it doesn't really understand the game. There are certain situations that it just doesn't comprehend, and you can, you can beat it. And when you think about it, understanding and knowing is really a feeling. So without a feeling, you can't really understand anything. So he said, understanding requires something outside the system through Gödel's theorem. And that outside the system were factors in the universe itself which influenced the collapse. And these can be platonic values. Plato talked about pure form and shapes uh, and, and solids. And, but these can be aesthetic and ethical values, good versus evil, beauty. And if you, I think of it as kind of a resonance. So if you're mindful when you make your choices, you, you, your choices that you select, your perceptions and your actions will resonate with the fine-scale structure of the universe, these platonic values. In a spiritual sense, you could think of it as following the way of the Tao, divine guidance, um, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, uh, in a more scientific terms, it would be uh, influenced by these platonic values embedded in space-time geometry. Hmm. And so when we look at um, the relationship between psychology and consciousness, actually, no, before I go there, I, I just remember what I wanted to ask you. So from what you've, from what, from all of your research, you've been able to measure consciousness, correct? Well, you can't really measure consciousness. That's the bizarre thing. Right. Uh, it's it's totally private, and it's very much like a quantum system. If you go to measure a quantum system, you collapse it. Yeah. Because you're you're interacting with a larger system. Uh, we have ways that we can sort of measure it. For example, there are machines in the uh, uh, EEG, simple EEG machines we use in in anesthesia. And uh, it gives us, uh, rather than looking at all the squiggly lines, which we don't have time to evaluate, the computer processes them and gives us a kind of idiot number from zero to 100. And what they say is, normally, oh, oh, normal awake people, you or I, hopefully at this point, would be between 80 and 100. And they say, if we keep our patients between 40 and 60 under anesthesia, they, they won't be awake, they won't remember. And then when you get brain death and brain damage, it goes even lower and approaches zero. So these devices can measure uh, can sort of give a quantitative uh, measurement of consciousness indirectly. Uh, I don't use them in the operating room because, first of all, they, they take an epic, they, they take a bunch of recordings and then tell you what that number was. So the number you're looking at was from a, a couple minutes, a minute or two ago, and that's too late because things change quickly. And uh, controlled studies have shown that you're better off in, in avoiding awareness under anesthesia, which is very, very rare, but can occur by just doing what we've always done is, is just looking at the patient closely, looking at their vital signs, because these things will change slightly before. 
In any case, these things can, in a sense, uh, give you quantitative measure of consciousness. Now, they, they were applied, they've been applied recently to a very interesting phenomena, uh, uh, that is brain activity at the time of death. And uh, uh, a doctor at George Washington University, Lakmir Chawla, who was an intensivist, started putting these monitors on patients as they died. These would be terminally ill patients who family elected to withdraw support. Uh, in some cases, they were going for organ transplant. And so uh, they might have had some minimal activity, and they turned off the ventilator, and they withdrew the, the drugs and whatnot, and the number dwindled to zero, and there was, uh, the blood pressure went, uh, dropped uh, very, very low, and the heart rate basically stopped. And the thing was almost, almost at zero, but then what they saw was a burst of activity in the high gamma frequency, EEG frequency, which is the EEG frequency that correlates best with consciousness. So it couldn't have been the uh, random last gasp firings of neurons because that wouldn't give, give you coherence. It looked for all the world like a moment of highly conscious awareness in a patient who was essentially dead. And uh, this has befuddled people, and uh, most people don't want to talk about it. Now, you can imagine that this could be the neural correlate of the near-death experience, seeing mm -hmm. the white light, um, visitation with dead relatives, uh, the tunnel, a sense of calm. It's amazing that these near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences that have been happening in, in almost all cultures for thousands of years, they all have the same story. You know, the white light, the tunnel, the calmness. And, you know, I've heard uh, doctors uh, say, well, it's just hypoxia, it's just lack of oxygen. Well, when patients get hypoxic, when they lack oxygen, before we can, you know, get more into them, they're very confused and, and, and anxious. They're not calm. Just the opposite. So I don't buy that explanation. So... Could it be the soul leaving the body? Well, we don't really know, but it's a possibility. And if the patient is resuscitated, they come back and say, yeah, I had this near-death experience. I was maybe out of my body. If they don't come back, well, uh, we don't know. But this, uh, the quantum information that could be their consciousness could, be, have, could have dissipated to the universe at large, but remain entangled as kind of a quantum soul. So I think afterlife and even reincarnation are possible. I don't say that they occur. I don't have any proof. I got enough problems uh, arguing for microtubules as the origin of consciousness. But until we know for sure what consciousness is in the brain, we cannot exclude it outside of the brain, particularly if it's a quantum effect with non-locality. And it can also explain things like ESP and telepathy and uh, uh -huh. that sort of phenomena. Is consciousness a form of energy? It's a uh, quantum information which has energy, but it's, it's a different type of energy at, at a very at low energy. Uh, so does it follow the laws of thermodynamics? Uh, uh, that's a tricky question. You can get around the laws of thermodynamics, right. you know, which uh, things go... Because I was just trying to, you know, a lot of people are trying to understand the, the, the process was some people call reincarnation. And, you know, again, I've got a very crude understanding, but when we look at the law of thermodynamics, that energy is not created nor destroys, it's constantly changing form. It almost, to me, in a very layman's basic way, explains, well, when, you know, if consciousness is energy and it dissipates from the body... Once, it's, once the body has died and it then goes and finds oh, another form, yeah. it gives the ability to relive and re-express itself. Yeah. Well, quantum entanglement can keep it together even non-locally. So the information may not be in one place. It can be spread out, but it's connected through this weird quantum entanglement, which uh, is, is hard to really ex explain. You know, entanglement means if you have two quantum particles that are connected, they're entangled, and you send one of them this way and one of them that way, like hundreds of miles away. It's probably up to a 1,000 miles an hour or even farther. I think from satellites they've done it. If you make a measurement here, this one instantaneously responds to the complementary uh, state. 
uh, it's affected. So measurement here, a thousand miles away, instantaneously affects this. And this was predicted by quantum mechanics, and Einstein didn't like it because it would mean that the signaling was instantaneous, which would have violated his special relativity idea that uh, nothing is faster than the speed of light. So, but nonetheless, the experiments began to be made in, in 1985 by Aspect, and uh, sure enough, it, it's true. And since then, they've been used uh, for quantum uh, cryptography and quantum teleportation and quantum computing. And the explanation, uh, the best explanation that I've heard, uh, also came from Roger Penrose. At the, I was privileged to be at the 1998 uh, quantum, com quantum information meeting at the Royal Society in London, the first such meeting. And people were hinting at this all, all along, and he got up at the end, he said, all you young guys are afraid to say this, but I can say it because I'm already a member of the Royal Society. So he drew this on the, on the blackboard, and he said, when you make a measurement here, the quantum information goes backward in time to when they were together, and then forward to inform the other one. So this backward time effect, uh, which appears to occur in the brain, it may be the secret to entanglement and how things are connected over time. Or it could be that space, spatial separation and time-like separation are really illusions uh, of the classical world. In the quantum world, they don't exist. Everything's together in some sense. So it's interesting when a lot of people talk about consciousness, especially from the science, and again, from what your science, it's like looking at the brain and observing the brain and you know, where it lives in the brain. But what is the heart's role in consciousness? Does the heart play a role? You know, uh, was it uh, Aristotle who first thought that uh, consciousness came from the heart? Um, we, we've had a, a, someone coming to our consciousness conferences, the Science of Consciousness, for many years, uh, a lady from uh, Sudan, of all places, who believes that consciousness is in the heart, and she always gives these posters, and she's really well-meaning, and, and uh, I know about the heart math work and so forth, and the heart has a lot of neurons and a lot of microtubules, so they're all over the body, and they're, it's heavily wired with the brain, so it's possible that there's some consciousness in the heart, and I know from uh, my anesthesia work, uh, uh, when I used to do cardiac uh, transplants, heart mm. transplants, that, uh, that the surgeons would talk about, they'd see somebody in clinic who had memories from the donor uh, of the heart. Or they learned to dance and they could never dance before, or this or that. And, uh, Even addictions, I believe, as well. Like addictions we, can yeah. be, yeah. yeah. So um, there, you, you, do get, uh, you, you do get some aspects of consciousness, memories, and, and traits and behaviors from... Uh, you can, anyway, from, uh, and from a transplanted organ, which has these microtubules, which have the, the uh, it could be in some, some other organelle, but uh, this explanation works, and uh, that's how, so it could be that, that there's some consciousness in the heart at, at all times, even now, or throughout the body, for that matter. There's microtubules everywhere. I think the brain is special, though, because you have the, the way that um, the microtubules and the neurons are configured to optimize consciousness, but... Um, it can happen in any, well, I'll say in any uh, structure with microtubules, which would be any animal cell, any plant cell, and even in a very simple form in bacteria and archaeobacteria. So all life forms to, to some extent. Do we have any control on our own optimization of our own consciousness? Uh, well, that depends on whether you uh, believe in determinism or not. It could be that we're, that we're uh, uh, kind of... Uh, uh, forced, uh, you know, everything's already happened and we're just following a path. I don't actually believe that. I think that, that we, we do have uh, some kind of volition and free will, if you will. The problem with free will, before we even get to, the, to, to that question, is let's say you and I are talking, you say something, and I, and I answer immediately, you know. Uh, if, you were, if someone were to measure the activity in my brain detecting what you said, it happens after I've already responded. 
Now, in my mind, I'm acting consciously. I understood what you said, and I'm acting, I'm responding consciously. But the activity for what you said hasn't happened before I respond. And because of that, the party line in neuroscience and philosophy is that I act, I respond non-consciously. And I have this false illusion after the fact of acting consciously. And this has led to the idea that consciousness is epiphenomenal. In other words, it doesn't really cause behavior, it's along for the ride. And we're merely help, helpless spectators, as as T.H. Huxley once said, along for the ride. Like the steam given off by a, uh, an engine. It's not driving the engine, it's a byproduct. And that's what most people think of consciousness because it seems to come too late. However, as uh, Fred Allen Wolf said in his talk the other day, and as uh, Benjamin Libet and many others have shown over the years, there's this funny backward time effect in the brain uh, that up to a half a second or several seconds so that the activity that detects what you said can go backwards in time. So when I act, when I speak, I am actually speaking consciously and have the information even though the brain hasn't figured it out but it sends it backwards in time. So without, so that would allow uh, free will and conscious control of my actions um, irregardless of determinism or other issues just by this backward time effect. Without backward time uh, effects, free will is impossible, hmm. at least for very rapid uh, responses, which appears to, to us uh, to be conscious. Science has been able to give us a lot of real, really amazing insights on you know, philosophy and spirituality, but specifically how prayer and meditation affects us at a biological level, at a physiological level. Uh, you know, obviously, most specifically, a lot of people talk about what happens to the brain over time you know, as we meditate and you know, more recently with the heart. What is the effect on consciousness as a result of meditation? Well, consciousness it is enhanced in some way. And uh, uh, it's been shown for many years that uh, meditators, the Dalai Lama sent his best meditators, uh, uh, monks, to a neuroscience lab at Wisconsin years ago, Richie Davidson's lab, and they studied these monks uh, with EEG and MRI. And what they found was that their baseline EEG frequency was higher than normal people. So normal people are maybe 40 hertz is their baseline, 40 times a second. Uh, but they were 80. And when they meditated, they went even higher, up above 100. And uh, so the fact that there was faster baseline means that their brains had, had changed over time. And when they meditated, they their frequency went higher. Now, to me, that means you're having more conscious events per time. First of all, I should say that I think consciousness is a sequence of events. It's not a state. It's not a property. It's, it's, a, it's a process, kind of like Alfred North Whitehead. It's a sequence of discrete events. Bing, 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 bing. And yet we, it, it appears continuous to us. You, we don't have a stroboscopic effect. Um, but it's like if you go to a movie, the, the movie is a se sequence of frames. If you watch a video, it's a sequence of frames at about 30 hertz, and yet it appears continuous. Now, there's a slightly different explanation for that, but that's, that's why I think consciousness is a sequence of events. So when you're excited or altered or you meditate, the frequency goes up. And in some cases, that could give the impression that the outside world is slowing down because you're having conscious moment, more uh, higher frequency than the other than the you know the other uh, person or the outside world normally has. So people in a car accident say as the car is spinning, everything slows down. Uh, the great uh, basketball player Michael Jordan said that when he's playing well, the other team is in slow motion. So he might be having more conscious moments per time than the defense, so he can outmaneuver them easily. So by so does that mean that there's an there's a, there's a binary relationship between consciousness and time? Uh, 
I, it's more than a binary relation. I think consciousness actually creates the flow of time. You know, in physics, there's no real need for a flow of time. There's no arrow of time. Yeah. You mentioned thermodynamics, and that, that is certainly uh, time-dependent, and it is an unwinding. But you can go backwards against, uh, against uh, thermodynamics. Uh, I used to do a little kayaking, and if, you know, the, the, the river's going this way, but there's eddy currents going backwards. Uh, if you, so you get inside, you can, go back, you can go back up to these eddy currents. And that's, so you can have backward time effects. But I think without consciousness, there's no flow of time. That uh, yeah, The future, the past, and the present ex- exist at the same time. But every time there's a collapse, a quantum collapse, that's an irreversible step. So that kind of ratchets things forward in time. And so consciousness creates the flow of time, I would say. Hmm. And I've heard different scientists, you know, I know Joe Dispenza in What the Bleep said, you know, the brain processes 4 billion pieces of information every one second. I've since heard that there's even more data that's been gathered that the brain can process as much as 16 trillion bits of information. And some say it's less, you know, and again, it's, it's kind of like a moving number. But I've, I've heard people say that the brain can process, you know, let's call it anywhere between 4 billion to 16 trillion, right or wrong. But the average person is only aware of a very small amount of those bits of information that he processed, you know, as little as 2,000. And you're referring to um, more conscious of events per time. So is there a relationship between as we become more conscious, we literally, and as you're referring to with, uh, with uh, the basketball example, we literally get to see more of what's actually within our reality. Yeah, the, the bandwidth goes up uh, is, and, and the frequency. So you have more per time, but each moment uh, um, you can have a greater intensity. So, um, as and most people avoid that because they, you know if they're seeing more information, they can often go into information overload. They can yeah. go into stress. Yeah, you know, they can essentially shut down. Right, it, it can cause psychotic breaks if you have too much. But yeah. as far as the percentage of the brain uh, and the number, well, first of all, if you if you look at the level of tubulin, uh, it's it's like ten to the twenty seventh operations per second. So it's way 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 higher than people estimate through neurons as bits. If you go to a deeper level. But I don't think that's the I don't think that's the point. It's it's a matter of the percentage of the brain you're using at a particular time. Uh, I don't know if you saw that movie Lucy, uh, where oh yeah yeah I like that movie yeah. and she uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson and she she had I forget exactly how she got the, uh, this capability, but she could uh, Morgan Freeman was going oh she's a ten percent now she's a twenty percent she used more and more of her brain and she got you know more and more information eventually I think it was it was overwhelming, but it could be that when you meditate and you go to a deeper level, you're expanding the bandwidth, and you're expanding the, the amount of information you use. And uh, for example, you might go from 1% to 10% in, in an altered state, and you're using much more of your brain, and therefore have uh, ten, at least 10 times more information. Hmm. And so when we start getting access to more information, is that essentially opening up more of the quantum world to us? Because yes. you know, when we look at quantum world, it's pure potential, nothing but waves of potential and potentiality. Newtonian world where most of us live and operate and even think from, it's very fixed, very binary. Well, it's a connection between those two. Mm. Because when the quantum potentials collapse, that's how you get the classical world. It's the collapse that gives you consciousness. It's every collapse, choosing a particular state of the classical world is what gives you a moment of consciousness. So what effect does our psychology have on the quantum world that shows up that we live in every single day? Uh, I was, uh, when I say psychology, I mean you know, the, way, the way that we perceive the world to show up based on how you know, we've programmed ourselves or, yeah. or, or, or experienced life. Well, let me, let me quibble about something, because uh, when you say we, who's we? I mean, we <laughs> is what we're trying to define. Yeah, okay? right. Okay. So, you know, we use our consciousness. We and our consciousness are really the same thing. Yeah. 
And our self and consciousness may be the same thing. You know, that's, that's a bit of a, a dispute and argument. But if you have these moments of consciousness and then another and another and another, uh, and with memory, that's self. And that's, that's you. That's consciousness. Uh, so, uh, uh, and so each consciousness is the sequence of events. And the idea that there's something, anything other than those events giving you, giving consciousness may not be right. So we're just a sequence of, of conscious experience. We have memories. That's why you're Kerwin and I'm Stuart yeah. and so forth. And we have our, our histories and so forth. But it could be that there's, there's nothing other than Kerwin or Stuart than the sequence of experiences. So where does the soul fall into this? You know, we've got this consciousness that can you know, be liberated from one form to another. What, what is this, in your opinion, from everything you've learned, what is the soul? Well, as I said, I, I take this uh, somewhat uh, dangerous position that, that consciousness can exist outside the body uh, as the quantum soul uh, and g- come back in if the patient is resuscitated and you have a near-death experience. Patient uh, isn't and patient expires, dies, uh, then perhaps it can exist indefinitely or go into another uh, organism, another set of microtubules, which will resonate and vibrate and take in this information and you have memories and consciousness in another biological entity. I, I don't think that's impossible. I don't argue for it because I don't uh, claim to have evidence. And I, as I said, I have enough other uh, contentious issues to worry about. <laughs> but I think it's possible. It also means that our soul, we're, we're, we're part of uh, consciousness even at this low down level, at, at the basic level of the universe. So we're kind of waves or ripples in a vast sea of consciousness. So you've referred to near-death experiences a number of times, and we've, you know, we've had some doctors say it's nothing more than an electrical impulse. We've had other people say it's, you know, it's you know, the direct line to God. In your experience, is a near-death experience, is it actually quite real, or is it something that is just a result of electrical impulses and activity that happens as we expire? I would say it's real. First of all, people say it's just electrical impulses. I think that's wrong for several reasons. Uh, I think normal, getting away from near-death for a second, just normal consciousness in our brains at any one time it's not just the electrical impulses of the neurons. I mean, uh, that, <clears throat> that dog won't hunt, as they say. You know, that, it doesn't seem to work. Because brain mapping, you know, mapping all the connections don't, doesn't even give behavior, much less consciousness, even for very simple organisms. So even under nor- normal circumstances, I think it's not just, by electrical impulses, they generally mean the membrane, at the surface, membrane and synaptic. You have to go inside to a deeper level where you have these microtubules which have access to quantum effects, and that connects you to the structure of the universe. So I wouldn't, I would dispute the idea that um, normal consciousness is just electrical impulses. So in the case of the near-death experience, we have this burst of activity uh, uh, that seems to correlate with the white light and the tunnel and, and the visitations. Uh, that's probably a, a, another form of quantum uh, consciousness, but at a deeper, faster level, a more intense experience. So you can go, uh, uh, if, you, if you meditate, you increase the frequency. Uh, all, certain uh, hallucinogens take it even faster. And I think that takes you deeper into the structure of the universe. You use more of your brain. You have a greater bandwidth, more non-locality. You're connected uh, more to other people and to the platonic values. And you become more at one with the universe. And it's interesting. You, you, you mentioned something there about psychedelics. And I'm just curious just to go back on, back on another tangent for a second. What role do you think psychedelics have played in the exploration of consciousness before science came around? And is there still a role for psychedelics in the exploration of consciousness today? 
Well, uh, I think it's played an important role. I think uh, a lot of people interested in consciousness may have gotten their start through psychedelic experiences. We have sessions on psychedelic uh, drugs and anesthetic drugs at our conference, The Science of Consciousness, uh, uh, almost every, every, every year, if not uh, uh, frequently. And uh, we still don't know how they work. I mean, uh, most people would say uh, they, they act in membrane receptors, but that doesn't seem to explain much. And we are planning on doing uh, studies on these microtubule vibrations. We've already shown that anesthetics dampen and slow down the, the oscillations, these quantum oscillations, these microtubules markedly. And we're going to now test through simulation effects of psychedelic and psychoactive drugs on the, on the microtubule vibrations. And the prediction would be that they would increase the frequency. And if you increase the frequency, you're going to push, and push the system, in this case consciousness, more into uh, more deeper into the quantum world, faster, again, more engagement with, with uh, non-local effects uh, uh, and uh, more in touch with the universe and, and, and other consciousness as well. Because, you know, obviously something that's becoming quite popular now is, you know, not apart from nootropics, is the, is the idea of microdosing, you know, taking very small amounts of, you know, psychedelics in order not to invoke like a complete... Right. Um, just a little inspiration. Yeah, just a little inspiration. Like, have you, have you seen any research around the brain and, and, and the potential that we, we can explore with that? Yeah, there was a talk uh, at, at our last consciousness conference, uh, and I forget who the speaker was. Uh, about a study of microdosing. He did a survey of, I think it was Silicon Valley uh, people, yeah. and, uh, and, and gave a very interesting report. He didn't come to any major conclusions, but it's work in progress, and um, I hope he comes back and gives us more information. Okay, so we haven't seen anything just yet? That, that, that you, Only in to. preliminary form. And so when we start then exploring into other fringe aspects of, of, of exploring consciousness, like uh, psychics and clairvoyance, you know, it's... it's it appears that now quantum mechanics can explain that, which you know is something that not only scientists have ridiculed for a very long time, but also religions have ridiculed and feared for a very long time. So I guess the question we should probably start with is, what is a psychic or clairvoyant experience, and how can, how can we understand that through quantum mechanics and explain it through what we know about the brain? I try to stay away from that because, as I said, I have enough uh, contentious uh, <laughs> issues. But uh, let me just say I think it's possible. I, I don't want to validate any particular psychic or any particular clairvoyant. But until we know what, that, what consciousness is for sure and that it's classical and doesn't need quantum mechanics, I don't think we can rule these things out. And certainly if these things happen, uh, and I'm not doubting that they do, I'm just not... Uh, and just not uh, validating them because I'm not in a position to do so, uh, they would seem to require some kind of non-locality and some kind of uh, a quantum effect. And also, even general relativity, connecting us to the structure of the universe. I, th I think, uh, I think these, these are related mysteries. You know, uh, Roger Penrose and I suggest that consciousness, uh, which is a mystery, is related to quantum mechanics, which is a mystery. And we've been accused, uh, somewhat jokingly, of invoking the law of minimization of mysteries. If you just take two mysteries together, you solve them. Uh, and I would add a third mystery, general relativity, or at least the relationship between general relativity and quantum mechanics, which has been uh, hard to obtain. And that these three mysteries may actually uh, coalesce and be part, sort of overlap and have a common, some kind of commas, common uh, node or uh, focus, and that they can actually explain each other. We haven't done very well explaining them separately, so yeah, maybe right. we shouldn't bring them together. Yeah, that would be interesting. So as we start to wrap this up, I'm curious, you know, obviously we've gone into some very interesting areas, 
but I'd love to bring it back to something really practical. Like with everything that you've learned, like you've done an enormous amount of research, you're connected with you know, not only your mind, but some of the brightest minds in the scientific community. From all of your research and everything you've learned, how can we take it back to a practical uh, methodology for living or a practical you know, set of steps for living? With what you've learned, what can we take and how can we use it to explore either consciousness or ourselves in order to live more fulfilled and happier lives? Yeah. Well, that's a very important and difficult question. I would say a couple things. Um, as I said before, if, if when we make a decision or we, we choose our actions and even our perceptions, if we don't act rashly and reflexively and kind of are more mindful, for want of a better word, then we're more likely to make selections and choices that are in touch with these platonic values. And this would be uh, gut, in, gut feelings, instincts, intuition. So if you have a, a gut feeling or, or even premonition, even information, uh, precognition coming from the near future, uh, I would trust these. I tend to trust these more and more as I get older because they, they seem to be valid. So uh, follow your gut, uh, you know, be mindful, don't act rashly, um, <clears throat> uh, follow your intuitions and feelings. And, uh, and if you get a little f- precognitive flash or something, uh, consider it to be possibly valid. Do we know what intuition is now? I would say it's, it's uh, these platonic values uh, that are embedded in the universe that are pushing you in the right direction if you let them. And what is the effect of emotions and stress when it comes to being able to, not just on consciousness, but on our ability to intuit the information that's in our environment? Well, that's, that's part of it. So a, a stress might put you, you know, uh, intuit you away from a decision or uh, um, a good feeling might push you toward it. Um, of course, stress can just be fear, and you, sometimes you have to co- overcome it. But it's the feelings. It's a gut, gut feelings. That's exactly what intuitions are. And I think feelings are extremely important. As I said earlier, I think uh, feelings such as pleasure in all of its different forms are what drive evolution. That's why we behave, basically, to optimize our feelings. That's why we do everything, whether it's uh, very complex uh, 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 relationships or money or behavior, whatever you do, it's it's to make us feel better, even either in the short run or the long run, and uh, that's what that's what drives uh, evolution. That's what drives uh, living systems. And how can we practically distinguish? You know, if, if we're new to consciousness or we're new to some of these concepts, how do we distinguish between what's an emotion, perhaps, and what's actually a genuine intuition? Well, I think they're related, and uh, it, it, we could be having these emotions because of some some intuition, which is, again, due to possibly platonic value, it's, the universe is trying to tell us something. It could be that. So uh, on the other hand, we have feelings for, for not good reasons, for bad reasons yeah. that you have to overcome, and that's everybody's history and so forth. Fantastic. And if there's one, one last question I'd like to ask you, what is it that you believe that we can do today as an individuals in order to develop a superhuman level of consciousness for tomorrow to live a better life? Superhuman level of consciousness. <clears throat> well, I think, uh, first of all, uh, humanity, mankind, is evolving towards... We've been evolving ever since, and I think, uh, uh, I think we're going to continue to evolve by doing the, th- the things uh, you've been talking about. Um, I think we can, uh, if we um, listen to these feelings and, and act accordingly in the moment, uh, we can defer anxiety. Uh, in anesthesia, we have crises all the time. And uh, I've learned over the years to, uh, to stay calm and, and, and act rationally, listen to my gut feelings. Quite often I do the right thing and, and without even uh, realizing why it was the right thing. But it turns out later it was the right thing. And then later I get nervous about it. You know, that could have gone the wrong way, but fortunately it didn't. 
Uh, but I've been doing it a long time, and I'm very experienced at it. But but it's still uh, it's still quite a challenge. Uh, the last thing I want to say is there are also ways to augment uh, consciousness, uh, meditation, in some cases uh, psychoactive drugs, perhaps. But drugs, uh, perhaps. But uh, there are ways to stimulate the brain non-invasively with electrical or magnetic or even photons into the brain. And we've been studying putting ultrasound into the brain. Ultrasound mm-hmm. is an imaging technique, and you know, women, uh, you can look at the baby and the fetus, uh, uh, the fetus in, the, in the uterus, and, and we use an anesthesia to look for the jugular vein to start lines or nerves for nerve blocks and so forth. And uh, ultrasound is mechanical vibrations in megahertz, about a million cycles per second. It's mechanical. Now, if that were electromagnetic, it'd be radio frequency waves. I don't want to put radio frequency waves into the brain, although some people have done it. But the point is that these megahertz vibrations are where the microtubules resonate. And uh, when I found out that microtubules have megahertz uh, resonances, I wondered, uh, and I saw an ultrasound machine that we were using in the operating room, I wondered if putting ultrasound in the brain would have an effect on consciousness. And to make a long story short, I had to be the guinea pig and try it myself. And sure enough, it, it, it kind of gives you a buzz and it, makes, it gives you creative feelings. And, and a very a few seconds, 15 seconds of, uh, of stimulation results in about an hour of, of uh, feeling good and creativity. We did the first study, uh, a clinical study on transcranial ultrasound, transcranial across the skull into the brain. It's attenuated by the skull, but enough gets through to bounce back and give you an image and show, showed mood, mood improvement in depressed uh, patients. We've done other studies on depressed patients and a group in Australia actually has shown in mice with Alzheimer's, genetically induced Alzheimer's, that they get markedly better from ultrasound and because in Alzheimer's disease, the microtubules fall apart and the megahertz vibrations actually promotes their reassembly. So we may actually be repairing neurons in Alzheimer's, also brain injury, and maybe even addiction. So we hope to, uh, to try this. It's very safe, it's painless, and it could be something that could also be used to augment normal consciousness and uh, help us evolve even further in some way. So should we be running out buying our own ultrasound machine and? Well, we have to do the studies first. Right. Uh, don't don't get ahead of it. But I think it's, I think it's something <laughs> worth looking at. Okay, fantastic, Stuart. Mate, I have to tell you, this has been uh, you know 13, 14 years in the making. It's a real honor and a pleasure not only to have you here uh, and sharing your wisdom and your insights, but also have you speak for our K2 elites this weekend at our Bending Reality Conference here in Vancouver. So for myself and the rest of the listeners, uh, wherever they are watching, thank you so much for your time, mate. Well, Kerwin, thanks for having me. It was a great time. Real pleasure. There you have it, guys. Thanks for tuning in to Unstoppable with me, your host, Kerwin Ray. And do me a favor, don't forget to drop me a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think. I love reading what you guys have to say. And your reviews make sure we keep creating killer content just like this. If you want to stay up to date with me and all my movements, please jump onto the website, kerwinray.com. And also check us out on social media, at Kerwin Ray. 